The CFO role is actually not really a numbers role. The numbers should be relatively straightforward to figure out. It's more a people's job. So you're in the business of really influencing people. And for the most part, they don't even report to you. Your job is really convincing a lot of people, helping them become their own CFO, I would say. Welcome to CFO Talks by Aspire a podcast where we showcase leaders who are bringing finance back to the driving seat of their company's growth in Southeast Asia and beyond, from fundraising to M&A, to regional expansion and leveraging new technologies to give your company a competitive edge. Find out from Southeast Asia's top finance leaders themselves. I'm your host, Joel, and welcome to CFO Talks. Cool, so today I'm here with Will, CFO of Love Bonito, one of Southeast Asia's fastest growing e-commerce startups, and frankly, a pioneer in the space. I still remember the days when LB first started as a blog shop on LiveJournal. And today, you know, the company is over 250 people strong with headquarters in Singapore and country offices in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, and even an expansion to the States. Prior to joining Love Bonito, Will had a career in private equity managing investments spanning across consumer, healthcare, and technology sectors. In his current role at Le Bonito, Will oversees finance strategy, capital formation, accounting, tax, legal teams, and many more. It's a lot of hats that I'm sure we'll deep dive into later. But first, beyond your impressive credentials and outside of your professional backstory, I'm wondering, Will, how would you introduce yourself outside of work? Thanks, Joel. Yeah, and to answer your question, wow, that's a tricky one. A quick intro about myself outside of work, I would say in a few words, I am a business builder, a father, and a runner. On the business side, you know, I, I'm really, really passionate about uh, building great brands, um, building great businesses. I think actually all businesses in some form or another are a brand. So it's not really just isolated to just consumer. And that's what's really exciting to me. Um, I, I've done that for more or less my entire life, all the way starting from my first job out of college, which was working at La Mer, which is uh, one of the largest super luxury cosmetic brands. Building that business from a very US-centric one to a, a global one that I think everyone recognizes today. And really on the other side of things is really being more on the uh, capital allocator kind of role, like in private mm -hmm. equity, where I invested in numerous companies uh, in consumer and in healthcare, sitting more at the higher level layer of driving a business uh, to build those businesses. But I think beyond that, you know, that's really very work-related. I, I think for me also, you know, I'm a father, I have a four-year-old kid, I think um, uh, incredible journey, uh, really learning how to be a father, uh, which is essentially learning to be a better person in, in the process. Um, and last but not least, um, I think, my my core hobby is really being a runner. I uh, I picked up running during COVID. I am training right now for a marathon. So I'm looking to do the Berlin Marathon in September. So I think I picked it up uh, partially because of uh, David Goggins, if you watch a lot of YouTube. And, and also um, one of my uh, aspirational mentors, which is uh, Calvin McDonald. Uh, he's the CEO of Lululemon. Uh, he's also a endurance athlete. So it's something that I'm pretty passionate about, even though it's very painful. Nice. So I, actually, like, I want to touch on point two and three. Um, so yeah, being a father, I, I, I'm a father as well, a uh, seven-year-old uh, boy. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I do sort of ask myself or, or think to myself, you know, what's, what's the real job, right? And, you know, we, we spend so much time thinking about 
business and solving problems in business. And sometimes I need to remind myself to like also solve problems in my domestic life, right? Like how to be a better father, how to be a better person. Definitely there's, there's something that uh, speaks to me about like spending at least on a baseline level time there thinking about that. So I really love the fact that you identify with that. Uh, on the third piece, being a runner. So I'm, I'm not a runner. Uh, I, I used to play uh, sports. I used to play rugby. But I, I recently read, like I was on holiday and I was, I was reading like Murakami's, you know, what I talk about when I talk about running. And it was really interesting, this idea of like endurance and it being really painful. Like it's, and people wanting to do it, even though it's painful. Tell, tell me more about that. What goes through your mind? Um, why do you enjoy it? What do you get out of it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think on being a uh, being a father, as as you know very well, and you touch upon a great point, it, it's always a challenge. I I would say at any given point in time, you're always balancing between uh, your career, uh, your family, and uh, your your personal or, or individual life too, or your, or some people may even call your spiritual life. And I think that's a like a very relatable challenge. I try to just give myself a little bit of slack. Any given point in time, you're probably over-serving one and underserving the other. I find it interesting, particularly with kids that are, or, or with raising a kid that, at least in my experience, where I'm struggling is sometimes I find it ironic that we spend so much time uh, analyzing problems at work um, and really getting into the details, right? Like researching, uh, researching how to solve a problem, analyzing what the root cause is, talking to other experts to get different ideas, uh, and, and then building out an implementation plan and from that implementation plan, making sure that we execute it in a certain way, like really step-by-step, -step, very thoughtful kind of processes at work. But when it comes to our kid, it ends up being, at least in my experience, um, maybe I'm not the greatest father, but it ends up being a very ad hoc, very gut-driven. And sometimes I wonder if that's the right model, but that's what happens in my experience. Yeah, no, I, I, I identify. It's this like, is, I'm, I'm not reading a, a lot of... Statement. Yeah, yeah. At best case, I'm reading <laughs> one book a year on how to raise a child. I'm, I'm reading a lot more, more books on businesses or I'm listening to a lot more podcasts and so forth. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. So I guess, long story short, I probably should do a better job on that. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, especially for, I guess, both of us are relatively young parents. I understand that you you actually came from a, or rather you, you did something quite different in, in college compared to maybe what you're doing today. What did you study in, in, in college? So I was a double major in art history and economics. Cool. And, and how, how, did you, how did you transition in, in, into, you know, private equity or... You know, after that, I, I guess you, you did your stint at Lemaire first. I started my career at Lemaire. I was in a global marketing team. We were in charge of building out the brand strategy globally for, um, for the company. And then I went to business school at University of Pennsylvania. That was the moment where I took that opportunity to explore another interest of mine. Uh, which was investing. So I've always had, I guess, growing up, uh, even uh, you can kind of tell from my the choices of my my major in college, which was uh, art history and economics, that I've always had a little bit of that interest between like the creative and the logical side, so to speak. And so post MBA, I really wanted to get into the finance space, which was in particular investing, which I found like super fascinating. Like, I mean, the whole idea of like, how do you invest in businesses? How do you value them? How do you create value for them at the operational level? If you're a private equity person in particular, uh, those are really like fascinating concepts that I could not even really understand how that worked when I was in business school. So I wanted to learn more about that. Right. And you, you kind of did that for what, six, six to eight years, somewhere there? Yeah, six to eight years. Time flies. <laughs> and, and how did you end up joining uh, Love Bonito? 
So I joined Love Bonito about almost three years ago. Um, it, it was really through a friend of a friend uh, connection to the founder and the CEO. So Rach, Rachel Lim is our founder and Dion Song is our CEO. At that point in time, they were like a Series B business. Um, they were looking for their first C-suite hire um, and, and looking for somebody who would help transform finance and, and strategy function to a level where it would put us in a great position to be a Series C and beyond or more of a growth stage business moving forward. So we talked for like months and, and I, I got really excited with the opportunity because I think for me, I was always passionate about building brands and I enjoyed what I did at La Mer, but I think it wasn't quite the right position for me, even though the brand was like really incredible. And I think with Love Bonito, there was a unique opportunity to take a Singapore homegrown story and build it out uh, into a global brand, which I think in the last two or three years, we've really demonstrated that. Interesting. And and do you think that for Love Bonito, like that proposition was interesting because there was a bit more ownership within that compared to maybe at Le Maire? Was that what was you know attractive to you? Oh, yeah. I think it's a big point. And I think it translates even more broadly to, I would hope, most startup jobs where today there's you know a lot of great jobs out there in the market, e- even in this arguably like difficult economy for really anyone who is relatively high caliber. And what one choice you have to make is you know going into a startup space or going to a more established and structured uh, large corporation space. And I think in a startup space, uh, you get the opportunity to do a lot more, to take ownership, uh, but at the same time, you are working in a more unstructured environment. Uh, you have to have a little bit more um, comfort in dealing with higher levels of uncertainty. So if that's kind of your thing, then I think this is the perfect thing. And for me, that was what I was looking for. I think I was a little bit of a late bloomer. So by the time I joined the startup space, um, I think I felt more comfortable in my own skin of saying, hey, you know what? I am comfortable building out, for example, new departmental functions from scratch, or I am comfortable um, solving problems uh, in the business that there's no obvious solution today, uh, to, and, and so forth. So for me, like that's what really uh, inspired me to join. Right. And do you think sort of coming from maybe not entirely a corporate background, I would say, but you know, maybe something a bit more structured, a bit more from, from the investment side of things, has, has that sort of given you a different lens into approaching what you do? I think coming from a private equity background does give you a different lens, I think relative to the more traditional CFO background, which I would say is typically, well, I I pause there a bit because I think the CFO role has been evolving fairly rapidly in the the last 10 years. And it's evolved in a way where um, there's different types of CFOs now or different depending on what kind of company, uh, company needs are. But I would say more broadly speaking, um, coming from the private equity background as opposed to a traditional CFO, which was more about coming from the accountant, accounting or FP&A um, career track. Mm-hmm. My differentiation is, I think first and foremost, is having that understanding of investor needs and capital market needs and being able to match essentially company company goals with investor goals. So that's a very, very big thing because sometimes when there's a disconnect there, uh, particularly in the startup space, that becomes a big problem because you're very, very investor driven because you're constantly fundraising, you're in high growth mode uh, and so forth. I think the other second big thing that differentiates uh, or or what I felt was very helpful in my PE days 
was the, the ability to do resource allocation in an almost investor-like kind of approach. So one key job as, of a CFO, quite simply, is to resource allocate. Uh, the challenge is that uh, you're the probably the only role in a company where you see all the major projects across the entire company. And that can be challenging because now you're resource allocating for different kinds of activities in the business, which makes them not very comparable at so many levels, whether it's like short-term, long-term, whether it's um, what specific aspect of the business this these projects are creating value. So I think as an investor, um, I was I got the training to really understand how to compare different kinds of projects or assets in, in a standardized way, and, and because that's what an investor does. You're looking at, particularly in Southeast Asia, you're looking at various different kinds of business models, and then but you have finite capital, right? So you're trying to make sense of like where do I put my money? Oh yeah, no, that's that's super interesting, and uh, I mean I I think you you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think one of the main roles of, of, of a CFO today is capital allocation or resource allocation within a company. To point at one statement that you said before that as well is that the role of a CFO kind of changes from company to company depending on the company's needs. And, and I find that super interesting, right? Like what is the role of a CFO in a fast-growing e-com company like like Love Bonito? For LB, it's really about two things. One is still about fundraising because we're still in the growth stage. And then two is it's about building out infrastructure in the business. Three, which is coming up to be equally important today, is uh, building out not just infrastructure now, but building out a strategy to really pivot the business uh, towards um, higher profitability in, in the future, which effectively means you're changing the entire way the organization uh, is working right okay so there's there's okay fundraising it's 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 clear and we we'll probably get to that in a bit uh the second piece of allocating resources in order to grow and then the third piece of maybe optimizing sort of the the, the margins but not not from a superficial level but really digging deep and and potentially restructuring a business that has you know grown so fast right over the years when you think about resource allocation, like what are the main pieces for an, for an e-commerce company, right? Uh, maybe, you know, if, if, if there's a CFO or, or finance head listening out there thinking about growing their e-com to the next stage, like what are some of the, the big uh, pieces that, the, you know, one should be looking at? You know, is it, is it like inventory? Is it cost of goods? Uh, I think when it comes to resource allocation, it's more strategic. So I, I would say it's less about uh, looking at a specific metric, like you mentioned, whether it's inventory days or, or CAC or um, some other um, performance metric. It's uh, because performance metrics are effectively lagging indicators. What's more important is taking a step back and the role, and let's ask ourselves a question, like what is the role, what does resource allocation mean? To me, what resource allocation is, is figuring out what is the most efficient way for you to express the company's aspiration or, or the company's strategy? So for example, if your company's strategy is to you know, be the biggest X player in X market, and then the strategy is to achieve that as X, Y, Z, then the follow-up question is how do we re 
allocate resources in a way that we can efficiently express that in, in a, hopefully and also in the lowest risk kind of way as well. So I think about it in some ways kind of like um, when you're uh, invest, think about yourself as an investor. You know, you um, if you're as an investor, you have to allocate across a portfolio. So maybe you have uh, a mix of you know, hot uh, mix of stocks and uh, mix of, I guess today, nowadays it's good to buy some debt, right? Because uh, treasury bills have a pretty good yield. <laughs> um, a third pocket could be real estate. You know, we're in Singapore, everyone loves real estate. But so you're kind of investing across uh, these different assets. And when you consider them, um, you're, you're looking at several factors. I mean, one is you're looking at, uh, definitely looking at your uh, ROI. You can measure that in many different ways, whether it's IRR. You're also looking at number two, the risk profile of these kinds of assets. And I think number three also is you're looking at short-term and long-term growth because at the end of the day, you need to balance both if you have specific if you have specific corporate goals or personal goals to achieve that. So you're, you're constantly balancing between a lot of things that um, effectively make the job quite interesting because you're, you may be looking at a lot of numbers, but actually you're also considering a lot of strategic questions within the context of those numbers. And so that becomes very important. Yeah, no, I like I like that. I mean, aside from, you know, the typical metrics of like, you know, is it high ROI? It's, it's also a topic of does it fit within the larger strategy? That's that's nice. Thanks for that tidbit. Um, who, who, are, who are the main sort of stakeholders or peers that you interact with on, on a daily basis, you know, whether it's in the company or, or outside? So in my role, um, First off, I think it's super dynamic. So at any given point in time, I could be overweight in working with a certain group of a certain group of stakeholders. But I'll say in general, I spend most of my time with three groups. Uh, one is talking with investors, both existing and future potential investors, or even talking with like I would say the capital markets, the broader capital markets. Sometimes we'll talk to equity analysts and so forth, right? And that's not a relationship that we would directly monetized today, but it's kind of good to get our business out there to investors or, or even understand what they're thinking about in their headspace. So that's one big bucket. Uh, the second one is um, obviously talking to other heads of departments. You know, as a CFO, you are working pretty closely with every other major department. Uh, so for example, whether it's the chief marketing officer or the chief people officer or the COO and so forth. And, and, and obviously, and most important of all, is the CEO, right? Because you are that, I think most people would generally say that the CEO and the CFO are like really connected to the hip because every CEO decision in most cases has a financial implication. So then you're the one to, to kind of uh, provide that perspective. And then last but not least, the third part is um, really working with your team. So in my case, you know, I manage about 30 different people. In truth, obviously, I don't talk to 30 different people at any given point in time. Uh, that's physically not possible. I, I wish it was the case, but no, it's not. So I have um, about five or six direct reports and really being able to figure out, you know, how do you build your own culture or your own ecosystem within the larger ecosystem of what is the LB or Love Bonito company? That's kind of the big three buckets for me. Um, investors, second is other other people in the management team, and third is my uh, direct team in my department. I think definitely one thing that has struck me, uh, you know, when, when, when I talk to, to our CFO and, and I've seen, you know, his interactions with, with other department heads as well, is sort of this ability to have 
opinions or, or, or have understanding maybe more fundamentally of, of the different nature of, of each department, right? I think that's something that's quite unique when I compare maybe a CFO to other heads of departments. Yeah, I totally agree. You're, it's, it's highly cross-functional, right? And I think one thing that maybe people don't realize or appreciate as much specifically to younger people that may aspire to this role is that the CFO role is actually not really a numbers role. I would say the numbers are, I would hope so. The numbers should be relatively straightforward to figure out. Um, it's more a people's job. So you're in the business of really influencing people and you're influencing a lot of people who, for the most part, they don't even report to you. And, and for the most part, they don't have the financial acumen that you do. But obviously, it's important as, for a company to have a financial uh, acumen or else um, a, lo a lot of trouble starts to happen, right? <laughs> um, your job is uh, it, it's really convincing a lot of people and, and educating a lot of people on, in some ways, helping them become their own CFO, I would say. Mm, that's a nice way of looking at it. Also on the investor piece, I thought that was quite interesting because you mentioned sort of having that, being that bridge between what investors want versus like what the company wants. And, you know, I think that's, that's a very hidden cost in, in the startup world, right? Especially for early founders. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're so reliant or so dependent on investors that it, it ends up uh, driving sometimes a different strategy. How, how do you sort of reconcile the two? This is where the role of the CFO can quite, uh, maybe to take a step back, uh, on the fundraising side or even investor relationship in general, I think that's a space where uh, the role can diverge a bit depending on the company, where in certain companies, maybe the founder would play a much more central role in these kinds of things. And, and this goes back to my point of like, um, there's a different CFO for a different kind of business. I think for us uh, in particular, um, I do spend, you know, I am the lead person when it comes to fundraising and all things investor relationship. You know, part of my role is really uh, aligning the interests of what investors are looking to do and internally what we are looking to do as a business. Um, and that's a skill set that I definitely picked up uh, during my private equity days. And I think I think when we think about these things, there's your your role, if you're in my shoes, is always to be balancing a pretty diverse range of different motivations across a, diff a large party of people, because you can even double click into shareholders or investors, as you know very well, because I think uh, you guys have gone through many fundraising rounds too. Uh, every investor has a different motivation. Every investor has a different risk tolerance. So, so there's no one size fits all, and you have to balance all of that within the context of how you plan to grow the business as well. If I'm not wrong, the last time you guys had a, had a big raise, I can't remember which series this was for you guys, but it was back in 2021. Oh, Series C, uh, yeah. Series C, and, and you guys raised, was it 50 mil? It was, uh, f yes, $50 million. Cool. And and how how involved were you in this process? You know, was was it and, and was it easy? Was it difficult back then? Yeah. So the Series C fundraise was essentially my baby. Um, you know, I led the whole process uh, from end to end, from origination to uh, deal execution and deal structuring. Fundraising is hard. Uh, I, I think uh, that that goes without saying. I, I don't think there's ever easy fundraise. Uh, even in a even in a good market, it's still extremely challenging. Yeah. Can, can, can you can you tell us more about the process? Like, was it you know did you did you have a strategy about it? Did you go to you know uh, existing investors to start? Was it a lot of prospecting? Yeah. No. There's a lot of strategic thinking around how to do a strong fundraising process 
in particular for us, we did not use a bank. So we did everything in-house. In fact, it was just me and another analyst. Sometimes I take a step back, like, oh, how were we so successful? I, I would say that uh, our success in doing the fundraising process in, in getting a very good outcome, bring, uh, you know, raising a lot of money, bringing in a really solid global private equity firm into our cap table and getting what is a reasonable valu- valuation in the process um, is really a function. Key success factor, I would say, is being able to plan this whole process beyond just the fundraising process. What I mean is that the fundraising process may have been about four, four to six months, but it actually started even half a year before that, where I was able to you know, work with uh, Dion, our CEO, in really shaping the business, both strategically and both from a financial profile perspective, in a way where the business would be attractive and well-positioned for the next uh, fundraise round. And I think that's a key part of what a, C- a good CFO would do. I would the ability to because you're inside the business, but also because you're a, you're the finance person, the ability to mo- merge both worlds together, having that end-to-end perspective, really enables you to set yourself up for uh, a good fundraise round. Because I think fundamentals are the foundation of any fundraise round, and once you get that uh, fundamentals in terms of fi- uh, financial strategy and so forth. That's the fundamentals. And once you kind of get that, then it, then it kind of flips over to how you plan to execute that uh, mm-hmm. that fundraising process. So, so that's a lot about understanding what the in- investor universe looks like. What are different types of investors looking for? I think this is where I think domain expertise matters a lot. I think if you're in the investor community, you will have a sense of like, okay, this fund, I don't know, like maybe it's KKR, it's TPG, it's Asia Partners. They tend to look at businesses this kind of way or that kind of way. And being able to um, shape your story when you're talking to them in a way where they can understand why you are a, an attractive business. So I, I think um, that's, that's, I would say th- those are like major success factors. We did quite well in the last round. Right. Yeah. So sort of starting early, um, ensuring that you have the fundamentals in place and then running a, a, a proper process after that. Yeah, yeah, and really understanding your uh, investor base, uh, as opposed to I think sometimes I think some startups um, don't really understand how their investors think, so they just kind of go out with a one size fits all. Um, that usually doesn't work very well. And maybe I'll add to that too. I think when I think about fundraising, it's it's not just about pitching your story. Another important factor that hopefully your CFO has uh, the ability to do is the ability to structure deals. And this goes back to my uh, first point where different investors look for different companies. That's one aspect. The other aspect is they also look for different deal uh, deal structures. Some investors, for example, won't name names, but they're quite obvious, are more than happy to underwrite uh, very, very big valuations. Their deal structures may have other conditions. So you have to kind of know how to navigate the whole deal in a holistic manner. Because I think when we talk about fundraising, people tend to think about only two things, which is valuation and fundraise size. They're missing the third part, which is equally important, uh, which is terms. Uh, I had a friend at Silver Lake, which is the probably the top tech-focused private equity fund in the world. And he would talk, you know, he always made a point to me, uh, something I learned uh, when I was at, uh, at Wharton, that you, I can pay any valuation you want as long as you let me structure the deal any way I want. And, and I think that hits a point home where I think everyone focuses on valuation, but actually 
you need to understand what terms you're underwriting and, and cool and you know sort of one and a half two years later what do you guys do with the money aspiration with using that money was the international expansion story where i think if you look at love bonito and i think if you're in singapore you're very familiar with us we've uh we started off 10 15 years ago as an e-commerce focused blog shop fast forward to today i think before series c we were still a very singapore centric business and singapore is a great market uh we really we're really thankful that we have some of the best customers in Singapore that have supported us since Rachel started uh, Love Bonito 10, 15 years ago and are still with us today. On top of that, we still have a lot new, uh, a, a whole new generation of customers that are coming in. But I think with that, we wanted to, we had even grander ambitions beyond Singapore and we wanted to grow internationally. And I think that's where Series C uh, came into play was giving us that funding to really grow the business beyond even Southeast Asia, where uh, fast forward to today, actually, 63% of our e-commerce revenue is from international markets. These are markets in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, but also uh, other key markets that we have are like Hong Kong and the US, where we're seeing really crazy triple digit growth in, in our business. And it's really about giving us, I think a grander aspiration as a business, when you take a step back, has always been about becoming the brand, like the go-to brand for, for Asian women. And so the logical thing is, well, there's Asian women all over the world, then we have a story to tell. Um, so we want to build out that community at a global scale. Right. And, and how, how has that expansion been going? It's been going has, really, you know, really COVID well. COVID or, 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 you know, the, the, the winter affected any of that? rising interest rates, and, and, and then obviously with the implications on fundraising uh, in the next, you know, six months, one year. Oh, so maybe yes, two, yeah. two different topics. Yeah. No, but I, I agree. I, I think what you're probably referring to on a more broader scale is like the volatility you see in the business landscape we're in today. And you're right. I think it's very interesting, or, or, or rather frankly, it's um it's been relatively challenging for a lot of businesses because starting with uh, two or three years back, to your point, you had covid some businesses really, really, really struggled, went out of business because of COVID. Some businesses did well. And then on top of that, uh, as, a, as, a, as the world went back to the post-COVID world, then you that same business that was doing well during COVID ended up struggling post-COVID because the dynamics have changed again. It's been a really difficult uh, landscape to, to navigate, uh, and it really tests your business models uh, resilient. I think for us, we've been really thankful um, over the last two years. Uh, we've really grown like exponentially. Um, our our two year revenue CAGR uh, is about forty three percent year to date. We're growing just as fast. Um, our international expansion plan has been um, has been very successful. Uh, like I shared, uh, we used to be only in Singapore and a little bit of Malaysia, Indonesia. Today, we're in those markets even bigger. But we're also in Hong Kong, we're also in the Philippines, we're also in the U.S. in a very meaningful way. So we've been a very big, I would say, in some sense, um, all this turmoil has played to our advantage, where I think what we're seeing is the market in some sense consolidating, or consumers are consolidating and gravitating towards uh, the winners. And, and why is that happening? Uh, a few reasons. I think one is that consumers today are being a bit more mindful of how they spend their money 
And, and as a result, they're looking to really support, engage with the businesses that add the most value to their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our case, for example, uh, we're very well known for having um, arguably the best wardrobe staples for Asian women. So if you're looking for the perfect blazer, the perfect pants, whether it's for work or going out, those kinds of wardrobe staples, like we are the go-to place for you. And that has given us a lot of business resilience. On a second point as well is that I think with this with this high interest and high interest rate environment, which has led to fundraising, the fundraising environment becoming a lot more tempered, but also a lot more rational. Uh, what we're mm-hmm. seeing is that comp- competition has dropped out a lot, and not just competition from other startups, but I would say competition from other global brands as well. Where I think everyone, uh, I think there's a misnomer that focusing on profitability is only for startups. Actually, everyone's focusing on profitability. I, I think the mom and pop shop in in Singapore um, <laughs> yeah. is also focused on profitability today. I think that plays to our strength because. I think two or three years ago, we were in an environment, or you can even argue stretch that two or three years to 10 years ago, over the last 10 years, because it's been a, frankly, it's been a zero or 1% interest rate environment for the last decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was just a lot of irrational money and irrational money leads to irrational business decisions. And that can create artificial growth for some companies. But at the same time, that also creates a lot of artificial and confusing business dynamics. So today, sure. I think we're operating in a much more cleaner dynamic where people are just being rational. And I think that plays well for us. Uh, recently, also heard uh, uh, that you guys uh, had some M&A activity as well. Uh, can you talk us through that? Were you involved in that as well? Me and my team, we worked on or we led the acquisition of Sheik, uh, formerly known as Butter. In, in case you guys are not familiar, Sheik is one of the hottest activewear brands that has emerged in Singapore uh, over the last few years. I think people love Chic for, I think one, you know, their uh, really fun or what they call like cheeky brand storytelling mixed with the fact that, you know, they're one of the few brands with, propri- with, with, uh, with proprietary fabrics that are designed to fit the Asian body. Um, very similar in some sense to uh, to Love Bonito's DNA, which is really focused on the Asian woman. Uh, they're doing it, I would say, in some sense, in a more fun and a little bit of a younger way. Um, so we were really excited about that brand because I think when we saw that brand and when we met the founders, uh, uh, Tiffany and, uh, and Olivia, we saw a, a future partnership in a space. Uh, we saw two young founders who were super passionate, wise beyond their age. And we saw a long-term partnership there where we wanted to get into the activewear space in the long-term. But at the same time, uh, they were looking for a partner that could hopefully accelerate their uh, growth journey, not just in Singapore, but really globally by leveraging our distribution and leveraging our know-how. In, 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 uh, in building out a brand because building out, building out a brand is ex- an extremely complex systems of skill sets that you need to have, uh, you need to develop. And, and it's very challenging for a founder to do that. So I think working together has been a very fun, a very inspiring experience. But to be clear, like Sheik, more or less from a strategy, from a product, from a branding standpoint, is completely separate from Love Bonito. We want to give the brand its own breathing room yeah, it's also one thing, right? I think when you're um, more on the corporate side, it's like the question, one question that always comes to mind or should come to mind when you do M&A is what is the relationship between the holding company and the subsidiary or, or the brand or whatnot? And, and for us, you know, we, we, kind of, we kind of adopt 
a little bit more of that LVMH or like SDL Lauder model where uh, we try to integrate on the more backend stuff, whether it's like accounting or operational, um, op operational verticals and so forth. But on the front end stuff where uh, the business is very differentiated, uh, we want the founders, we want to give breathing room to the founders to do what they do. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's important to sort of know the model uh, before you actually, you know, sign, sign the sheet, let's say. You know, I've, I've heard of, you know, different uh, scenarios where, where sometimes after a company's been acquired, it, you know, it, it, things fall apart because some of these early things were not ironed out. Yeah, it's and, true. I mean, I, statistically speaking, uh, most M&As lose money. Really? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of research on that. Um, on, on average, whether it's big or small, most, most acquisitions are dilutive to the business. Interesting. Um, you know, early on in, 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 on the show, you mentioned that, you know, the, the role of a, a CFO has changed over the years. I want to dive a little bit into that. Like, what do you think has changed when I speak to other CFOs? I think, you know, some, some tell me that, you know, it's gone beyond sort of a S&P function, beyond a, just a, a management accounts or, or bookkeeping function. Do you think that's changed in, over the years? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think at the very basic level, um, perhaps the CFO 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, was really the controller role, right? It's a more elevated, uh, the CFO is a more elevated version of the accounts controller. And, and maybe that was quite, uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me because I think um, 10 to 20 years ago, if you had strong accounts controls and a little bit of FP&A or a little bit of uh, ability to analyze financials, you were like really cutting edge, right? Like you were way ahead of the game. Like, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, no one was talking about like LTV CAC, uh, talking about like unit economics, like that, that those are all modern concepts. And Interesting, really... I, I, didn't know, I didn't know they were that modern, but okay. Oh yeah, I mean, partially because, I mean, there was no, um, I think it's a function of technology too, right? I mean, 10, 20 years ago, it was really hard to like, um, there was not enough infrastructure to collect all that data and then much less analyze it. it, analyze it. And I think fast forward to today, um, the finance role continues to be set as important as ever, but the but what does finance mean is a lot more broader now. It, it's it's about still about managing accounts, but it's about analyzing mm -hmm. that data. It's about merging strategy with finance. So all these roles end up being, uh, all, all these um, skill sets end up being skill sets that stretch beyond, I think, what a typical career track of a CFO used to be. And as a result, I think what you're seeing today, and I think that's good for a lot of people who may aspire to be a CFO, is that uh, there's no cookie cutter background that um, you have mm -hmm. to come from in order to be a CFO. Like you can come from that traditional um, FP&A accounts background. Of course, there will continue to be CFOs from that more traditional path. Uh, you can do it like me, where you came from the investor side or the private equity side or venture capital side. I, I even see other iterations sometimes. I think I've seen like people who were like business development, uh, business development backgrounds, like, but but very financial, like really good at driving uh, the business, eventually become CFOs as well. I've also seen lawyers. Lawyers are now CFOs as well, which is like, whoa, wow. it depends. Wow. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. And, and I, I totally agree. And I, I think, you know, also, Relating back to the point where, you know, you do need to have a bit of that problem solving mindset, dealing with different stakeholders, different, completely different departments of the business. Uh, I can see kind of where that comes in. Maybe in terms of uh, 
parting advice, right? What, what advice would you give to upcoming CFOs or, or aspiring CFOs of today? Oh, that's a tall ask. I, I feel like <laughs> I'm still also learning how to be a good CFO. I recently did a, um, like a CFO, small CFO gathering, um, which was led by Alan Shim, who is a former CFO of Slack. Oh, yeah. A super smart guy. I really admire him so much. And I, I, listening to him talk and learning from him, I realized how, mu- how little I knew about being a, uh, a CFO. I, I would say the most important thing is being very comfortable constantly being in learning mode. I know that sounds like a very mindset thing, but I, I think at least in my experience or my observation, uh, by the time you're thinking about being a CFO or some similar kind of role, you're probably in your 30s or in your 40s. And at that point in time, you start to get into this uh, chapter in your in your life where you think you know you, you know a little bit to be dangerous, but you don't know enough to like to reach your full potential. And I think it's very important to be a bit humble and and stay hungry. I think people get a little bit lazy after a while to to, to really continue to learn. I, that that would be my biggest advice. Nice. Look, Will, it's it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Uh, thanks for sharing you know your your insights, little bits of wisdom. You know, I love how a lot of it. Uh, stems from you sort of also being a people person, being able to understand uh, the needs of different stakeholders and how you merge that with your investor background uh, to add value to driving the business, merging both, uh, you know, what's uh, the internal needs of the company and also the external needs of the, uh, of the investors that you're talking to. And sort of finally having sort of that always, you know, positive, a learning attitude towards problem solving. So thanks so much for, for being on the show and, and for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, likewise. Uh, thank you so much, Joel. This is a really awesome experience. It's my first podcast. So well, that's, I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, no, thank you. And I guess we'll catch you around. Yep, likewise. Bye. Once again, thanks for joining us on Aspire CFO Talks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and follow us and our guests on LinkedIn. That's it for this episode, and we'll see you on the next CFO Talks.